Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Square. I'm Poonam Schallenberger, and I'm here with Samantha Flores, director of Hugo. Welcome, Samantha. Thanks, Poonam. So glad you're here today. We're talking a little bit about data-driven design and how it shapes the user experience in the built environment. Specifically, this conversation kind of started because you just ran a project with Ontario International Airport. Can you tell me about why they came to you and, and what the sort of ask was when it came to doing some a little, a little bit of design research and data? Yeah, for sure. So Ontario International Airport, they came to us because they have a very small airport. It sometimes is used by people who maybe can't find flights out of LAX that are desirable or, you know, the surrounding Inland Empire comes to Ontario International. And it's a, an older airport. Um, they've actually just developed their customer experience team. So their customer experience team came to us and just wanted to know how do we actually elevate the customer experience? I mean, in their mind, it was, you know, people want more outlets or people need comfier seats, but they really wanted to drill down to, you know, where do we actually put dedicated investment? And they wanted a data-driven solution so that they could go back and say, hey, look, we've looked at all of the data, we've talked to all of the passengers, and this is where we should actually put our investment. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, when we think about designing a space like an airport, there's obviously the technical operations that have to happen there, right? Certain number of planes that need to move through or passengers that need to move through a space within a certain time. But then there's the actual experience of things. How do you define a customer experience even to begin with? You know, it's really interesting because I feel like especially in aviation and in other projects as well or other typologies, but in aviation, you can have one interaction in an airport and it ruins your entire experience. I mean, think about if you go to the front door at the curbside and you think it's just going to open and you're standing there waiting for it to open automatically. That can ruin your experience. Right. Going through TSA can ruin somebody's experience. I mean, I feel like we've all probably had yeah, or experience. Airports just tend to... You're so be, stressed. Yeah. There's so much anxiety. You're already sort of vulnerable, right? And then they get you. It's like you walk in, the gate's all the way on the other side of the yeah. terminal, and you're lugging all of your things. So, Where you go to the other end of the terminal, you get to your gate, you realize it's a little bit delayed, you have time for food, but you actually can't see anything within the vicinity, so you don't want to leave your gate in case the time changes again, so you actually don't participate, so you have a bad experience. Right. And all of those friction points are probably different depending on what kind of traveler you are. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So, can you walk me through a little bit of the data process and why why even go to data? What does it sort of tell us about the passenger experience? Yeah, so I think when people hear like customer experience, passenger experience, user experience, they think that there's a lot of feelings and emotions and preferences. And especially people who are investing money in something, they don't want to invest money on someone's happiness level or satisfaction level to a point where they, they want to make sure that they're making an investment that's going to pay off, right? And so when we think about the user experience and how we can go to a data-driven approach, one of the things that we did specifically in this project is we interviewed 90 passengers. 90 passengers, some of those who had just recently come through Ontario, some of those who had been through Ontario in the last like five months, some of those that lived near Ontario, some of those who have been through LA and Ontario. So we did a variety of passengers. Not only that, we actually kind of dug into the demographics of who actually goes through Ontario and made sure that our sample size reflected that demographic. Yeah, it's I love how you said that. When you're making this investment, there's so many 
even beyond airports, mm-hmm. right? When we talk about office spaces or schools or any sort of typology, there's a there's this understanding of like, well, I don't like this, so this yeah. must not this yeah. must not work, or this is what causes frustration for me. And it's such a subjective thing. It is. And when you're making this investment for now, but also for decades and and years to come, for all different like for a diverse set of users, right? I can't think of a more I can't think of a space that invites such a diverse user set as airports. Oh, right. And then on on top of that, you know, we're not just looking at the passengers, right? Because like you're just saying, passengers will tell you what they like and they dislike. Someone may love the the water refilling station. Right. And like, what does that tell us? So we interviewed 90 passengers. We also followed 80 different passengers across the airport to understand their behavior in space. What do you mean follow? Like Not stalk creepy. them? Okay. <laughs> well, we just, you know, we jotted down what they were doing. Oh, okay. So but, actually. Yeah, we saw some people yeah. actually praying in the terminal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw some people dancing, like doing a dance class in the terminal. Like we documented a lot of different behaviors on how they actually use space. We noticed that in hold lounges, um, everybody was crowding around tables and surfaces and no one was actually sitting in the bar seat. Mm. So um, that was helpful for us to understand understand, you know, if we're starting to change the makeup of the hold lounge, we might want to introduce more surfaces. But on top of interviewing passengers and following them around and tracking their behaviors, we also did um, retina scanning glasses to, like, physically track data points. We got almost 5,000 different data points from those scanning glasses. Can you tell me about what what are retina scanning glasses? I mean, I think it's sort of self-explanatory, but... Yeah, so so what we did, we got about 20 passengers um, that had never been to Ontario before, and we gave them customer experience tasks. So things like, you found a lost package in the hold lounge. Find lost and found. Find where you need to drop this off. We said we told one passenger, um, you are a passenger with reduced mobility, so you cannot use typical conveyance. You need to use elevators. So in all of your, you know, moving through the airport, you need to be using elevators. Or, you know, we had one passenger that um, we labeled her as anxiety-driven, and um, so she had a pet that was with her. So she had to find pet relief station and then had to find a place in the whole lounge for her and her pet. So what we did was we gave them these scenarios that they had to run down. They had never been to the airport before. And then we use retina scanning goggles. So these goggles or these glasses, they scan your retinas at the base and then they have a camera in the middle. So everything that you're seeing, we can see. And then the scanners actually help us locate fixation points. So if we tell you to go find pet relief station, you may be looking for the signage. And what we noticed on that specific task is that this person was looking or these the set of people that had this task were looking for the dog symbol but we're ignoring the language that said pet relief. Um, So they weren't able to find the location. In addition to the fact that you have to do a 180 to find it, which is challenging for passengers um, who are wayfinding. Um, So we ran through several of those those tasks. The retina scanners actually give us fixation points. They give us distances and time on task if they completed, if they failed. So it really helps us to understand how people are being successful throughout their time in the airport, especially on tasks where we're asking them to find a concession that can allow for people with reduced mobility. It's just wild because, I mean, going back to what we were talking about before, just it it can be such a subjective thing. Be like, okay, I got it. This is where I would normally look. Mm -hmm. But perhaps someone can't lift their head as high and their fixation points might be a little bit lower. Or like you mentioned, they may not speak the same language. Airports obviously invite people from all parts of the world. And so maybe they're not looking at the language. They're looking at these icons instead. Okay, so we're we're tracking people at the airport. We're 
we're asking people to complete surveys. We're doing some data, like retina scanning. Mm -hmm. What's the purpose of collecting all this, and what do you do with this data? So we actually go through a process of collecting secondary data first, which is looking at everything that's out there and existing. So we did a social media scan, and we found all of the the customer experience-related comments that are out there on the Internet free for access um, so that we could understand how passengers who aren't specifically being asked by us researchers about their experience, how their unfiltered responses are. And so this is like tracking people's tweets and comments. Yeah, tweets, okay. comments, Instagram posts, anything. We can we can track anything in the social media scan. Um, and then we also looked at Google reviews. How are people reviewing different spaces within the terminal? Um, so we're getting all of that data. Um, we're also gathering data as far as their passenger demographics. So that's all secondary. And then when we do primary data gathering, we we, um, that means that we are gathering data that is purely from our studies. So that's back to the the interviews, the survey taking, um, following passengers around, behavior mapping, spatial syntax in the space. What which, is spatial syntax? It's a it's a an algorithm and a, basically a script that we run on the um, floor plan where we we can say, okay, this is a typical passenger flow. If you look at a floor plan, passengers should do this or they should do this. But with spatial syntax, we can say actually what's visible from a hold lounge. For example, if you're looking at your concessions and saying we're not hitting the non-aeronautical revenue numbers we should be hitting, then you can look at your spatial syntax and see, well, nobody has visibility to all of these concessions Mm -hmm. and people won't go to those spaces if they can't see them. That's just a natural behavior that we've noticed. So we take all that secondary data and the primary data. Um, We also did a quality, environmental quality scan using sensors. So we tapped into, we got... Over 5,000 data points in um, light quality, sound quality, scent quality, um, CO2 levels. How do you measure these things? We have sensors that we put up throughout both terminals at Ontario and try to really understand what was causing some of the changes, like what's causing the, the noise level changes, what's causing the CO2 level changes. In fact, in some cases, we found <clears throat> that certain spaces throughout the terminals were above 50% of the time, they were above 70 decibel levels. So that means that it's an, <coughs> excuse me, it's an uncomfortable noise level mm. for users. And that's 50% of the day when we're tracking all day. We also found that there were several locations throughout the airport that were um, above like 70% of the day, they were above comfortable CO2 levels, which can change your ability to make decisions, can change your fatigue levels. Um, And so really we can start to think about what are solutions to get rid of CO2 in those areas. I have to ask, how do you measure smell? (laughs) Measuring smell is difficult because it is so subjective. Um, So we do a round of asking questions um, to people, you know, what are you smelling in this area? If they're smelling garbage, like that's not good. Um, But a lot of times they're smelling concessions food. Um, And then we can also, we we have a scintigraph that helps us kind of determine, you know, what smells should be there to enhance the space. So you're collecting primary data, secondary data, and then environmental Right. Sensorial data points, right? And then what do you do with all of this? 
So we go through a process where we kind of overlay all of those and we try to analyze them against who the passengers are. So at this point, we have developed who the passenger profile is, what types of passengers are going through this terminal. And we go through every different touch point in the airport and we label those touch points with what were their specific comments, what were their specific behaviors, what were were the needs that weren't being met in those spaces, and then what are the CO2 levels, temperature levels, uh, lighting levels, How are the lighting levels causing glare, for instance, for passengers with reduced mobility who see glare on the floor and think, oh, that's a wet space? Um, So we go through every single touch point. We layer all of the data that we've gathered, both qualitative and quantitative, and then we start making recommendations for the future. And when we make those recommendations, we put those into a framework that we call the now next future. So what are things that they can do now? to change and elevate that passenger experience? What are the things that they can do next if they have a little bit more agency to change the space? You know, maybe do, um, maybe add some furniture or, you know, larger uh, larger interior renovations. And then what do we think about they can do for the future? And that really means, you know, full-fledged new construction. And that's where we get into our trend reporting, where we are pulling um, different trends and working with the airport themselves to understand how do they implement autonomous bag drops? You know, how do they implement biometrics? You know, those larger items that take a lot more thought and processing. So, you know, data when it comes to architecture and design is not necessarily a totally new topic, right? Um, it, in fact, people have been talking about all the data that you can collect, and it almost seems like an endless amount of data that you can, everything from like, how often are people booking conference rooms? Is oh, that yeah. conference room actually occupied? Where do people hang out? I mean, it, even sustainability measures can be m- measured through these data points. So how do you, I would imagine that you have to kind of distill some of like what's relevant data and what's not. How do you decide what to measure, like that you even should measure the lighting quality or the smell quality? How do you, how do you curate the data points when you have such an endless amount of data to choose from? Well, I think it's easy. Well, what makes it a little bit easier is we had a two-week time crunch. So we had to gather all of this data in two weeks, um, all the primary data, because we wanted to be on site. So we kind of looked at, you know, how can we break up this schedule and what's feasible? You know, we had to we had to source participants to walk through the, the terminal. When can we schedule them? Um, so there are a lot of bumpers that you can kind of put into place to kind of narrow down. But specifically, when we're looking at things like lighting levels, noise levels, temperature levels, um, CO2 levels, those are things that we have um, kind of identified as non-negotiables for people. Those are things that make people either feel satisfied and comfortable in a space or dissatisfied and anxious and stressed and uncomfortable in a space. Yeah. And so we really want to make sure that our spaces are doing great on all those levels. Yeah, it goes back to what you were saying. Well, what is the purpose of this exercise to right. begin with, right? So if it's to shape the user experience, it's to give passengers a more comfortable, more seamless, more human journey, then that's kind of what you have to measure, right? And so I would imagine that your goal, you have to define your goal and your purpose well in the first place. How does, how do you even work with the client to say, okay, well, what is it that you're trying to, what's the problem you're trying to solve? Mm -hmm. Well, and that's interesting because when you enter that conversation between you as an architect and the client as an airport owner and operator, you also have a third perspective, which is the user. So you have to consider all three perspectives when you're setting those goals. Me as an architect, I come in with goals of 
how how might the data influence design changes? The airport owner and operator has goals of how can I make my concessions or how can I make my whole lounges more successful to the users? And then also what what's working with my staff? How do I create a one airport? Because even though TSA is a different entity, some people will relate that back to the airport and say that they had a negative experience because of TSA. And nobody really thinks that the concessionaires aren't a part of the airport ecosystem. So on the client side, it's really, you know, they want to understand what's working, what's not working across the entire ecosystem, and how can they elevate that experience. And then from the user side, they want, you know, everything to be seamless and to be easy and to be understandable. And from their side, you know, they're not really going to complain about something unless it's not working. Yeah. And they're really not going to be asking for something super futuristic like technology or anything unless they see it, unless they're attracted to it. Or unless, in our case, we have a lot of people that are traveling from larger airports like Seattle, Dallas, um, New York to Ontario. So their home airports have a lot of amenities and upgrades and things that are accessible to them, whereas Ontario doesn't. So making sure that we're meeting those basic needs for the user is extremely important. So that's how we kind of start setting our goals. Yeah. You know, earlier, I think we were talking about how the airport goes, okay, well, we need to, maybe not even just Ontario, airports generally go, hey, we want to create a better passenger experience. We should get more comfortable seats. We should get more outlets. And it, and this happens I, not even just in design. So often we tend to lead with the solution and go, this must be the solution, right? Or this must be the problem. And I think the gift that data gives us is to kind of make things a little bit more objective and to kind of remove these sort of personal perspectives, which are valuable, right? Mm -hmm. We do ask passengers, what is it that you want? But it helps us to get away from, Let's just lead with the solution. Let's lead with what the architect might want. Let's lead with what the pot, the airport might even want to really drill down into what does the data tell us. Mm -hmm. But you have to you have to define the problem correctly in the first place. And so, how do you kind of apply this to different typologies, right? Because that sort of leading with the solution or defining the problem. So often we're trying to create a better experience, whether it's for patients or for students or for the employee. How do you help clients across other typologies figure out what their problem is and use data correctly? Well, I think it's interesting because clients will come to you with a specific problem most times. And through this process, we actually find areas that could use enhancement or, you know, could elevate the user experience that maybe they weren't aware of that they find extremely important. And that's the other thing, too. We may find 10 different areas that need improvement, but we actually also go through a prioritization uh, uh, workshop with them to say, okay, these are the problems or the areas that we kind of identified as needing in improvements, and let's prioritize those with your goals so that we're never suggesting that they just make investments um, based off of just the data or just our preferences, but they're also making them based off of their personal goals. And so with other typologies, you know, some of the things that we've, you know, done in the past and some of the things that we're doing in the future in healthcare, you know, we've had 
healthcare is a very complex, um, a very complex typology. When you are stressed to the nines and you're like running in with your baby, maybe who's had seizures and you need someone's help, you need to find that ER and you need to find that desk. There's so many similarities when you really think about healthcare spaces and aviation, yeah. though, right? Like people it's all are process driven, right? Process driven. People are stressed. And then also going back to the everyone has to go to the hospital at some mm -hmm. point, sometimes for great reasons and sometimes for really scary ones. Um, everyone goes to an airport. And again, not everyone speaks the same language. Not everyone has the same ability level physically. And it's already naturally right. a very stressful place to be in. Well, and in one situation in a healthcare facility, we um, use the retina scanning goggles, glasses, and um, we found out that one of our users, our, our goal was to have them find the right elevator. So in this particular instance, the elevators were color-coded. And our user, who had never been to this hospital before, said, well, I'm actually colorblind, so is there another way I can find this elevator? And that's when you realize, you know, you have to layer information as a part of the wayfinding experience, but as a, as a way to, you know, alleviate some of that anxiety in those complex situations. In our, our um, education study that we will be doing, one of the problems that the client said to us is the building that we are in is designed so well that it actually intimidates students. So they walk in the door and they turn right back around and decide not to come to higher, to school at this Just higher education. Because they're overwhelmed. So, because they're overwhelmed. They think, I mean, and this is something that we're going to find out through interviews. What do they think? What, what about that space makes them want to turn around and, and not come to school? But the client's hypothesis is that they think it's too intimidating and that they may not be able to succeed. And so how can we as designers build success in from that first view. Yeah, I love that you call it a hypothesis, right? All of this data and experimentation, surveys, and really kind of proving the value of design and not necessarily coming in with the assumption, right? Because it could be that someone's just feeling very intimidated yeah. by a space. But, you know, probably that space was designed because, or in that way, because it was, hey, we want it to look sort of elevated or we right. want this sort of great established look because, again, someone made the assumption that that would attract students That's there. That's higher education. That's higher education. That must be what people want when they're paying their tuition. And again, it goes back to making these assumptions, but not because someone thinks a certain thing or maybe even a small group of people think right. a certain thing. And so I think that's like, again, that gift that data gives you. And so you're you're working with this client to kind of ask, why are people turning right now? Is there data that shows that they're leaving as soon as they walk in? So they have their own data. We haven't actually started that project yet, but they have their own data. And it is overwhelming how many students will go in for the first day and will turn around and leave. Mm. And this is higher education. You would think at that age, it's a little bit different. Um, but at that age and for this specific facility, they are likely paying their own tuition. They likely are much more responsible for the success and the outcome of their education. And therefore, if they walk in and they don't feel like they can be successful at this institution, then they feel like they may be able to find success in another way. So you've collected some of the demographics for the higher ed campus in, in terms of understanding what kind of students are using the facility and, and maybe why they're turning around. What What's next in terms of the kind of data you're going to have to uncover for this 
particular client? Well, so we'll do very similar uh, data collection as to what we did for Ontario. Um, we'll start with that secondary data. We'll look at everything that they have, and we'll look at everything that we can find um, that's relevant or studies that have been conducted. And um, that'll actually help us kind of tailor which data that we actually need to fill in the gaps for us. We will do you know, probably 100 plus interviews of students, asking them about the space, just, you know, describing the space to us or describing their experience. But we'll also do a lot of the behavior mapping, the shadowing, we'll do the retina scanning. Um, we'll also do a lot of the sensor, uh, qual the environmental quality sensors as well to really help us determine all aspects of that space. And then we'll we'll start looking at more psychological design um uh, practices to really help us determine, you know, how do you design a, a space that emanates success without it overwhelming users? Because that's the problem here is that this building is designed so nicely that people probably thought these high finishes, these high quality stone finishes mean success when really to people who are, you know, coming from the demographics that we're seeing that are responsible for paying their tuition, they need to know that they're going to get a return on that investment. Right. Or maybe it feels great and established and shiny, but maybe it doesn't feel personal enough, right? right? So how do you how do you create that? I think that you bring up a really good point. Data is so useful, and it, you can collect all of these numbers and fixation points and all of that. But you do have to kind of layer this sort of human element and the design that architects bring, right? You can't just plug in these numbers someplace and have someone spit out a design, right? right. Because there is the psychology of how we interact with spaces and how the built environment shapes that sort of perceived thing. You know, someone once told me um, there's there are materials, for instance, in healthcare spaces that will that are actually clean. Yeah. But then there's there's real cleanliness and then there's perceived cleanliness, right? Speckled countertops, for instance, make people not feel like something is clean. Right. And so or like the psychology of how do we establish trust or how do we establish sort of transparency? We talk about that a lot in the office space. But what is the psychology of feeling included in something or belonging? So how do you how what sort of psychology sort of exercises or subjects are you going to be studying for this higher ed client? You know, there are a lot of different works that we've been looking at where um, psychology of inclusion, um, you know, groups of eight, for example, people will talk to each other in groups of eight, but once you get to nine, everybody kind of breaks out into their own group. Um, so when you start to think about space and spatial design, when it's designed for those peak times, airports, hospitals, education facilities, they're designed to hold, you know, 100, 200 people at a time. In airports, it's a lot more. Um, but then whenever it comes down to those groups of eight, uh, you know, that it doesn't support that conversation. We also know the lighting levels support inclusive conversations. Different lighting levels can change the way that you socialize or different scents can also change the way that you feel about the space, whether it's warm, whether it's cold, whether it's inclusive, whether it's um, distracting. You can also make a space feel clean by infusing it with grapefruit or orange peel. Um, people will think that it's being cleaned all the time, yeah. um, which is just interesting. You can you can use a lot of the, the data points that we're gathering. You can use those as design metrics and design tools to help really shape a space. Yeah, I think that's like where that magic happens, right? You take the numbers, you, you know how, how a space might be performing currently, but then you also know the psychology of where people right. do their best. Right. So 
We've talked a little bit about kind of the process and how you're applying it to these two different typologies. We started talking about this a little bit. How, what do you think's next for data and how you might apply it to the built environment from airports or education or for really any kind of building? I mean, that's a great question. A lot of the, you know, we do some trend reporting, um, really looking at, you know, what's what technologies are increasing or accelerating and how are users adopting those technologies or how are they behaving once they use those technologies? The, that type of research is extremely important for us, especially in aviation, um, because the last thing we want to do is make everything biometric and then people don't trust biometrics, so therefore they don't fly on planes anymore, um, which will not be the case. Actually, we're seeing great user behavior and user adoption with biometrics right now, so um, it's actually going in the opposite direction. Um, but I think the way that we gather and use data, um, something that we'll have to do in the future is, you know, make sure that we're using it appropriately. Make sure, um, right now, one of the things that we are doing is making sure that all the data that we gather is unbiased. And a lot of times, especially when we're looking at demographics of who's using the airport, um, we have to make sure that we're using specific data sets, for example, to make sure that we're not excluding different parts of the community who have recently started flying. Um, you know, historical data can be a little bit more biased. So, you know, when we're using that and translating it to say some sort of machine learning or AI, then we'll need to make sure that we're translating it in a way that is is acceptable. Yeah, you bring up such a good point, right? Because I I would imagine that companies can pull up a survey and run a run customer surveys, and you get them all the time. Like, hey, you came to our gym, can you review the class and all of that? But there's so much bias that's built into this, right? Maybe I respond because I actually have access to my technology, mm -hmm. or I'm more likely to. Feel to take to an iPhone survey than maybe another user would. But um, when a client comes to you saying, hey, we've heard all of this great stuff about data, or maybe they're not coming to you and they're thinking about doing this on their own, what are some major sort of co considerations that you might tell a client to think about in terms of, hey, how do you avoid biases? How do you shape the right questions? How do you collect the right data? What are some sort of things that you you should keep in mind? Specifically for the client, when you're when you are thinking about doing a sort of similar exercise, is it timing? Is it is there a certain kind of data that's more telling than another kind? You know, I I I don't know if there's a. I mean, you can find reasoning and insight from a lot of different data, um, and I think that making sure that that insight is not your own perspective is extremely important um, because you could read a data set and I could read a data set and we could interpret it completely differently. Um, what we have to do is make sure that that interpretation is in not just in the benefit of the client, but is serving the client in a way that they are understanding where they're making successful moves and where they're making, uh, where they're failing. And that's just extremely important. We could just, you know, tell them where they're being successful and then continue working them, but we have to, you know, let the data show them where they can make improvements. Um, I also think that it's extremely important uh, to make sure that when we are going through and, and gathering information, you know, obviously I'm a huge proponent of talking to people, interviewing people, getting surveys from people, and we always make sure that we're getting the right demographic. So, you know, in one project that we're working on right now, we're looking at lower income communities. So we are talking to people in those communities. And if they do or don't have access to the technology, we're still finding ways to reach out to them. So I think that it's important to know who you're designing for in order to make the space successful. 
Yeah. So lots of information that data can give you. And it's been in the conversation in terms of how it affects the built environment for a while. What's the most, and maybe we'll end on this question, what's the most interesting thing that working with data has taught you? You get the benefit of probing and investigating all the new technologies that are out there, asking all the tough questions and investigating new typologies. But what's something that the data has taught you? You know, I'll use this um, project with Ontario as a a great example. Um, As an aviation designer, you know, prior to Hugo, I was an aviation designer. And um, one of the things I loved to design in were uh, planters or, you know, small gardens for people to enjoy or, you know, trees. And our clients would always be like, no, take that out. Too much maintenance or trees invite birds or, you know, so it was always a no to plants. But with Ontario, one of the things that we were able to prove in our data was that there are elevated CO2 levels in specific areas where if you introduce a green wall or a planter or a tree, that you can reduce the CO2 levels to a specific amount that allows people to still have their decision-making capabilities. In some cases, and this is so crazy, at Ontario, before you get up into the security level, you have to actually go up an escalator. So the people at the bottom can't see security, so they think it's taking a long time, so they're extremely anxious. And then so many people fall off the escalators. It's insane. I And, you know, we noticed it in our studies. We asked the client, oh, yeah, three a day, four a day, five a day, a day. That's not, I mean, that's Just so tumble, many people Tumble down the escalator. And a lot of what we observed is that there are people with vertigo. We know that people with vertigo um, going up an escalator, actually putting trees next to the escalator will help stabilize them. Mm. Um, and then also there are people who are using their cell phones <laughs> and forget to step off the escalator and that causes them to fall. I don't know if trees will help them, nope. but um, the point that I'm making is that there are very specific ways to use data to help us understand in this particular instance where we can introduce plants, where we can introduce nature, where we can introduce um, nature sounds, for example. You know, we did that study on the sound quality and the noise quality in the terminal. And what we found is that in some cases, introducing bird sounds can actually reduce the stress and anxiety of passengers, especially as they're coming out of TSA, because that is the highest noise level. It's it's 95 decibels for 92% of the day. So it's extremely loud. And um, we, you know, can't even imagine, you know, once you go from that to the concourse, the level change in noise, adding those bird sounds will help to reduce the adrenaline, to lower your anxiety and your stress levels and really get you, you know, ready to board your plane. I love that. You know, our lives and the way we move through spaces is changing all the time, whether it's TSA or, you know, what the workplace looks like. All of it's changing all the time. And I love that data has this power to either challenge traditional best practices, you know, well, we've always done it this way, or trees are too too costly to maintain, right? Or to challenge it, but then also sometimes to underscore some things that we just know are enduring good best practices. Biophilia, good daylighting. Mm-hmm. So I love that we're moving away from assumption to really concrete data that constantly reevaluates that built environment. Well, thank you so much, Samantha. It's been great chatting with you. It's been a great chat. Lots to learn about data for all of us as architects and designers, but even folks who just kind of enjoy talking about design. So thank you so much for sharing. Of course. And thank you so much for watching, and we'll see you the next time on The Square.